Thanks, Seth. That was a very graphic example. <laughs> the pencil did survive, if you wondered. It did survive. So, well, good morning. Uh, before I start the sermon, let me just give you a little update, uh, pastoral update. Jace and Jenny are traveling on vacation with uh, the Hudson clan, so that's why he's not here today. And Carrie and I are leaving for a couple of weeks vacation on Tuesday. We're going to be flying out on Friday to Portugal for 10 days. So something we wanted to do for a long time. It was going to be part of our sabbatical, and we thought it might be better to do it now. Hope it is. So appreciate your prayers in that, and that's where we'll be for the next couple of weeks. So let me ask you to open your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, we are going to be finishing up our mini-series on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, we're going to jump into this last petition. Lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we're going to go through a lot of... A lot of verses, a lot of quotes. So let me just let you know up front, we will be posting the quotes online with the sermon next week. So just kind of relax, listen. Uh, you can make notes as you would like, of course, but don't feel like you have to write everything down and we'll have that there for you. So kind of a summary of the Lord's Prayer. We're learning that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us categories for prayer kind of fenced in areas that our prayers can run wild in, these categories. Uh, there are three petitions for God's glory. One, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So three prayers for God's glory, three prayers then for our needs. And it is, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. So interestingly, of the three petitions that pertain to us, two of them deal with sin. Being delivered from sin is central to the gospel and central to our life in Christ. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Christ came in the world to save sinners. Christ's work in your life is to forgive you of sin and then to break the power of cancel sin. Last week, Jace taught of the foundational need to deal with past sins by daily asking for forgiveness and forgiving others. And this week, Jesus equips us through prayer to avoid future sin and the schemes of Satan. So, Matthew chapter 6, we'll read verses 9 through 13 for a context. This is God's Word. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word endures forever. Having read about prayer, let's, let's bow our hearts and heads in prayer for a moment. 
Lord, we thank you. You have been expanding our categories for prayer and enriching our lives. Father, we desire that Holy Spirit continue to work through these teachings to expand our relationship with you through prayer. Help us, Lord. And help us, Lord, this morning to grasp and apply what it means to, to pray that you would not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil. Lord, help us with that by your Spirit. Lord, you know my weaknesses. So, Father, help, help us hear a better sermon than I have prepared by your Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, by way of introduction, um, maybe a little bit uh, silly, but, but maybe it helps us set our thoughts. I want to read to you from an article written by Danielle DeWolf on an online blog called Shortlist. And she wrote on the 20 most overused lines in cinema. So, 20 lines from cinema that were used in a lot of different films. And they've kind of drifted into the vocabulary, the vernacular, the day-to-day -day thing. They're not especially good lines. It's uh, quantity, not quality. But somehow they have picked up this theme that seems to be, yeah, that says it the best way. And that helps us think about it. So I'm just going to read a few of them off. And then we'll eventually get to the one that I think may be helpful to us. So the first one is, we've heard this, right? Is that all you got? You know, come on, bring it. Is that all you got? I can handle that. Uh, this one, I think, is that someone's talking about someone else. They don't realize that the person, and they go, oh, he's, he's behind me, isn't he? <laughs> this next one is like the bomb's going to go off. Something's going to happen terrible. And somebody yells, get out of there. You know, that's in a lot of films. There's another one. You, you, you just don't get it, do you? Just don't get it. This one we, I hear all the time. I could tell you, but I'd have to... Don't say it. Don't say it. This one is uh, typically the bad guy. He's trying to bring the good guy over his side. And, and uh, both men of violence, but one for good, one for bad. And, and, the, and the bad guy says, we're not so different, you, you and I. This one, if you touch one hair on her head, don't do anything stupid. I wouldn't do that if I were you. So, here's the one that might help us think about how to respond to this, this petition that Jesus gave us. It really did the whole Lord's Prayer. You may recognize this. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. <laughs> so, so, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, and then I think especially on this petition, is looking at us and saying, you want to do this the hard way? There's an easier way to do this. The concept that Jesus is proposing is staggering, really. I mean, we, we know it, we've said it a thousand times, but the reality of it, practiced in our life, really, literally, could be life-changing. When we pray daily in faith with specificity, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We can literally avoid sin and reduce spiritual oppression in our lives. Or we can opt for the easy way. We can opt for the easy way of appealing to the Father to remove sin. Or we can opt for the hard way of not praying and sinning more and facing adversity. 
I've asked everyone in here, I'm not asking you to do this, but I've asked everyone in here, you know, do you pray enough? Every hand would be up, I'm sure. If I ask everyone, you know, are, is there sin that you fight? Are there trials you're going through? Probably every hand would go up. Maybe if we understood this process better, what Jesus is after, we would pray more regularly, Lord, lead us not into temptation. But what, what does that mean exactly? So is God tempting us? Is God trying to get us to sin and we have to ask him not to do that? Lord, don't, don't make me sin. Is that what God's saying? I don't think so. I had a chance to listen again to Merrick Potter's excellent sermon on Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11 that he gave some weeks ago. It's about the temptation of Christ. And it says he was led into the, dev into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It says that. The thing that we're praying against, he, it happened to him. Now Merrick taught us, and then Seth taught us again, uh, that James chapter 1 says, God cannot be tempted with sin, and he himself tempts no one. So it can't mean that we have to pray for God not to tempt us. And also, this word tempting can also mean testing. Often it's translated testing. And we see all through Scripture that God puts His children in trying situations to test their hearts, where according to James, quote, there each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So God doesn't tempt us to sin, but we get in situations, and if we're sinful in that area, it's going to manifest itself. But God can use that. Job faced fiery trials of loss. Abraham faced the trial of sacrificing Isaac. We could go through the whole scripture and see it over and over again. Their hearts were revealed and God was glorified by their faith. But it somehow seemed contradictory, right? We're told to pray to not be tempted or tried perhaps. But God actually uses trials and temptations to test us and teach us. So what's the deal? So when I struggle, I go to the smart guys for help. So Dr. Dr. D.A. Carson says, I think we have a quote for you. He says this, and he uses the word incongruous, which means contradictory or goofed up or something. It's the opposite of what you think would happen. So he says, the New Testament tells us that this age will be characterized by wars and rumors of wars. It's going to happen, but does that find it incongruous or contradictory to urge us to pray for those in authority so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. It's going to happen that we can pray against it. While Jesus told his disciples to rejoice when persecuted, Matthew 5.10-12, he nevertheless exhorted them to flee from it in 10.23. And even to pray their flight should not be too severe, 24.20. So similarly, a prayer requesting to be spared testings may not be incongruous or contradictory when placed beside such quotations to consider such testings when they come as pure joy. So here's how I get this. So if I'm on, if I'm on this side of the door of a trial or a test or temptation, I should go to the Lord and say, Lord, Yes, you know, let me confess my sin. Deliver me from that trial. 
And I'm praying that God would work in my heart and give me repentance from sin and wisdom to avoid the temptation and the trying situation. But on the other side, when I actually have gone through that test or that difficulty, then I can pray and, and ask God to help me consider it all joy. Because I will go through some. But I can avoid some as well if I'll pray. Jesus is telling us to pray to the Father that we would avoid situations that would be tempting to us or would present an especially difficult or trying test. So here's an important part of this that's easy to miss. It is in that time of prayer that God is calling you to. It's not this rote, okay, I prayed this prayer. It is stopping there and marinating in that and saying, Lord, here are the things that tempt me. Here is the trial that could be coming up. And letting your Father interact with you in that moment, bringing you repentance from your sin, giving you wisdom to avoid the trial. Or the grace to pass the test if you do go through it. So two points today. Number one, the daily fight against sin. Number two, the daily fight against evil. Point number one, the daily fight against sin lead us not into temptation. John Owen, the Puritan, famous quote from him from his fantastic book, Overcoming Sin and Temptation. And I say it's fantastic not because I've read it, because I've heard it's fantastic, if I'm honest. But it's a really good quote. He says this, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Jesus tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation. It's a daily prayer to fight sin. We need to avoid the banana peels, right? The banana peels that we throw down and say, oops, I slipped. There are situations I know I will not handle well. I get out a box of candy, I say, one piece, that's all I'm gonna eat. So a half hour later when I'm in a sugar coma on the floor, I've eaten them all, I'm like, I knew this was gonna happen. I didn't need to get that. It's a simple thing, but it's true. I'm feeling myself. Um, I know if I stay up late on the computer, I may go places I shouldn't go. It starts out legit. No, I needed to send this email. I need to do this. But after that's done, I'm like, let me see what else is out there. I know that. I should know that. I should not do that. I start a conversation that I know will lead to an argument. You know, don't throw down the banana peel and say, oops, I slipped and fell. Oh, yeah, you know, we, I knew that wasn't going to go well, but I did it anyway. Those are pretty mild examples. Most of us are engaged in combat with longstanding, difficult at times, discouraging areas of struggle with sin. So we need to identify our clingy sins and pray about them so we can avoid them, our clingy sins. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to think about what, that, what I mean by clingy sins. 
writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, we all deal with these stubborn, besetting, other translations say sin that so easily besets you, besetting sins or clingy sins, and it's easy to lose heart, lose heart and give up. But we can have continual comfort and power from looking to Jesus' finished work on the cross. He was victorious. He went through trials without sin, died and rose victorious over sin, hell and death. In Him we have forgiveness and the power to overcome sin. That's given to us in our relationship with Christ, but it's a relationship. So let's think about two ways to lay aside clingy sin. Two ways to lay aside those sins that tend to cling. The one is take a detour from clingy sins. Take a detour from clingy sins. Pray daily for the Lord to show you situations that will likely cause you to sin and ask Him for a detour. Ask Him for a way to avoid it. All your friends may be able to enjoy certain movies, but you know those movies will cause you to sin. Don't go. Don't watch them. Um, some of your friends may be able to enjoy alcohol consumption and faith in moderation, but you can't. Don't drink. Certain people may cause you to sin through gossip. If they are Christians, gently correct them. If they will not change, avoid them, whoever they are. If you know something's going to irritate or hurt your wife or a husband, don't say it or, or find a gracious way to say it. Now here's what I do. In the morning, I'll say to my wife, Karen, I'll say, honey, I, you know, call somebody and ask them X and find out this information for me while I'm gone. So she says, okay. She gets back at the end of the day and she says, okay, I get home. I say, okay, what'd you find out? She said, here's what I, she tells me the answer to X. And I said, well, did you ask them W, Y, and Z as well? Did you ask them L? She says, what the L? <laughs> what the L do you want from me? I, you didn't tell me to ask that stuff. What are you doing? So, and she's right, I did it. I, she's not my mind reader. How's she supposed to know? I know that. So I shouldn't ask her to do something that I should do myself. And if she does, I shouldn't come up with all these other things. I know that's gonna tempt her. And she's a godly wife. She's right to be tempted with that. Those, if you know that's going to happen, avoid it. Spend time in prayer over your clingy sins. Ask your father for strategies to avoid the tempting areas. Get another job. Get new friends. Get rid of the TV. Take a detour to avoid sin. However, often we don't have a choice to detour a tempting situation. That's why we desperately need to pray. On the Mount of Olives, the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus himself cried out to Father God for grace for the trial he was about to face. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and called them to pray, but they slept. 
Here's how Matthew relates what's happened. I think we may have this for you on the overhead. And Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for his eyes, their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, a betrayer is at hand. Jesus passed his test and trial. Peter, James, and John did not. I don't, I don't judge Peter, James, and John. How, how often have I slept when I should have prayed? Yet there they were, thrust into the trap set by Satan, into the hand of demonized men, into the boiling hate and tremendous thrashings of a demonic world that knew that its end was at hand in mortal danger. And yet, Peter, James, and John entered that terrible situation, uncovered by prayer, unstrengthened by fellowship with the Father, unable to see the hand of God at work in the maelstrom. And then, the fateful rooster crows. And dawn and the denial crash into Peter's conscience. And he weeps bitterly. Peter stayed awake and prayed. Would he, would he have denied Jesus? That seems to be what Jesus was trying to get Peter to understand. Even though Jesus had foreseen the sleep and the denial. However, in the book of Acts, we see a different Peter. We see a Peter now vigilant in prayer. Jesus told Peter to watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. He says to us, Covenant Grace Church, to pray, lead us not into temptation. We may never know how many detours we took from sin due to that prayer, but if we pray, God will give us wisdom to avoid sin. So detouring is vital, but as we've seen, we need to take another step, and that is, number two, discern the clingy sins. We want to deter them as we can, but when we can't, we need to discern the clingy sins, those sins that, that continue to beset us. We avoid all we can, but God will put us in situations to enable us to gain victory over sin within. So when we become aware of us clingy, Settings, and we need to ask the Father to reveal the sin behind the sin. Another example from my life. When Karen asked me to fix something around the house, sometimes I get irritated by that. Now, I need to tell you, Karen is a godly wife. She doesn't nag me. She doesn't pout if I don't do it. She's gracious. She's lovely. Wonderful. I don't deserve her. I have no excuse for my irritation. Uh, however, the reality is in that moment, it's not enough for me just to repent of being irritated. Oh, honey, I'm sorry, I got irritated. I mean, yeah, I should do that. 
but I need to repent of my idol of comfort, of my lack of a servant's heart, of not loving my wife in that moment. That's why I did it. That's why I sinned. So you may be asking yourself right now, what kind of pastor do we have? <laughs> Sounds like he's got a lot of issues. You have a pastor who can be prideful and selfish, and I'm fighting sin every day. Will you fight with me? Will you fight your sin with me? Now, if you have a long-standing struggle with sexual temptation of any kind, again, it's obviously not enough just to repent of lust. I'm sorry I lusted. I'm sorry I did that, Lord. That's sure, you should do that. But if it's long-standing, something else is going on. What is the sin behind the sin? Is it control? Is it comfort? Uh, is it uh, an escape from responsibility? Why is the sin behind the sin? Where did this start? That's part of what Jesus is calling us to do when we pray. It's not just pray this prayer, but to search our hearts out. What's causing me to do this? Jesus is calling you to pray to your Father in heaven to show you how to avoid throwing down your own banana peel. How to put out the fires of hell that are burning in your soul. How to repent from the sin behind the sin. You may need help with that. That's what your community group is for. These are the folks, at least some of them, who God put in your life to help you walk out of sin into freedom. You may have other people in your life outside of community group that can serve you in this. That's fantastic. No limits there. Use whatever God's given you. But don't miss the God's design in our lives through our community together. Let me just take a moment to remind us of this central purpose of our community groups is to build relationships of trust so that we can get help with sin and struggle when we have it. You do life with someone for a while, you learn to trust them, and then you can open up. I'm not saying it's easy. I've been in community groups for over 40 years. Over that time, I've noticed some folks will only talk about uh, uh, and ask for prayer for circumstances in their lives they aren't happy with. You know, the hard things, things they aren't going the way they prefer. Yeah, I wish this wasn't happening. I wish my, my job was different. And, th and those things are good to talk about. But if there's something convicting in this sermon, these folks will just be quiet or just talk about kind of the theological ramifications of that concept rather than opening their hearts and confessing how it's affecting them personally. But I've noticed other folks who take opportunity to confess their sin and ask for help. Those that confess their sin often get help and change. When I look at scripture, it seems like that second group of folks have found something precious. lean into that opportunity to help and to get help fighting sin through your community group. James 5.16 says it this way. It's a powerful verse. And I hope it brings hope to you if you're struggling with sin that you've not shared 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Often, in that moment of humility, God will meet you. And if, and if not, in utter full deliverance, you'll have people to walk with you through those challenges. If you're struggling with a clingy sin, reach out to someone in your group that you can talk to or someone you're close to and get some help. Now I want to shift a little bit. We've been talking about a personal application, but there's also application for us as a church community. Jesus said, what, let us, lead us, not temptation. So there's a community application of this as well as we pray. So look back over the last 18 months, we see many temptations as a church community. Temptations to doubt God's goodness, temptations to judge one another, temptations to gossip and speculation, temptations to not gather together, temptations to apathy. I have personally dealt with and fought all those temptations. But from my perspective, God has been merciful to us. As your pastor, I am just filled, and your pastors are filled with gratitude for your faithful response over these 18 months or whatever, and over many years, to trust, to believe, to walk believing the best, to not give in to those temptations. Thank you for your godly perseverance. It honors God. It's a fruit of the gospel in your lives. And I'm aware that you Pray for us as pastors. You could not do me a greater kindness. Thank you for that. We are grateful that we feel that. Grateful for you. Jesus is showing us the means of grace we have to obtain victory over sin within and to resist the attacks of evil. So point number two is the daily fight against evil but deliver us from evil. Now, this subject is not without controversy. Some of us here come from a deep charismatic tradition and experience certain teachings around this. Others come from other evangelical mainline or even Catholic traditions that had a different emphasis on the fight against evil. So, some of, of what we will consider will address different aspects of maybe those traditions. And there isn't time to do an exhaustive teaching on this, so we're going to just take a broad view, hit some passages. It's going to be drinking from a fire hose. Hopefully it's helpful. Like I said, you can get the quotes later. Uh, you may come away with more questions than answers. That's okay. We'll work through that over time. So having said that, let's think about what is Jesus actually saying here? Commentators differ on exactly how this portion of the Lord's Prayer should be translated. Many say that the original language has an article V before the masculine form of evil um, delivers from the evil, and they would say that it should be translated delivers from the evil one, talking about a personal enemy, Satan. And, and that's very valid. Other commentators say, yeah, that is true. It has that meaning, but it also applies to the wider range of evil 
like natural disasters or sickness or evil men. So I think that's right. Translators pretty much agree with them. Most versions of the Bibles agree with the version that I use, English Standard Version, and say delivers from evil. Uh, but that's included in there. And we're going to think today more about, about the idea of God calling us to fight a personal enemy through Satan and demonic forces. By way of example, let me, let, me, let me relate to you an article from October 4th, 2013 in, in the New York Magazine. A reporter named Jennifer Sr. interviewed Antonin Scalia. Antonin Scalia, Supreme Court Justice who passed away a couple of years ago. And she's interviewing him, asking him a whole bunch of questions. And she asks him, don't put the quote up yet. Um, she asks him, do you believe in devil? This is one of many questions. He said, yes. And she was shocked. He said, you seem surprised. She says, I am. She said, he said, do you believe in the devil? She said, no. And then she asked him this question. You can put it overhead if you haven't already. Jennifer Sr. says, isn't it terribly frightening to believe in the devil? You idiot. I mean, she didn't say that, but that's what she was thinking. You Neanderthal? Justice Scalia just kind of goes off on her. He says this, you're looking at me as if I'm weird. My God, are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believes in the devil. It's in the Gospels. You travel in circles that are so, so removed from mainstream America that you're appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Most of mankind's believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. <laughs> I don't have many more people, I don't have many people that are more intelligent than, than the justice was, but anyway, there may have been some. So we, so I don't know how that lands on you, but, but the reality is some Christians, even though they might not say that, they don't believe in the devil, They've come to believe that the Satan and demons are really no concern anymore. Is if in fact, if not in fact, if they wouldn't say that, at least functionally. It's just an uncomfortable topic. Uh, so it feels okay just to ignore it. Like, okay, I don't have to worry about that because I don't know, that's weird. I'm, I'm not gonna go there. Jesus pretty much shatters that notion by instructing us to pray for deliverance from evil and the evil one every day. <laughs> Every day. So let's look at the Bible. We're going to go through a bunch of verses kind of real fast. Just kind of let them wash over you. And let's see some of the things the Bible says about this. Jesus himself, Matthew 12, 28 to 29. But, Jesus says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Elsewhere he says, if I do, if I cast out by the name of God, the finger of God has come to you. Jesus is saying, listen, this is part of what I came to do, to break the power of Satan and devils over people's lives. And that's part of the process of the kingdom of God advancing. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says this, uh, 
Paul saying, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. There are specific personal designs that we should not be ignorant of, of a personal enemy of our souls and of God's work on earth. 1 Thessalonians 2, 18, Paul says, similarly, because we wanted to come with you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So somehow this enemy created this design and blocked Paul from advancing the gospel the way he wanted to. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, and this is Paul giving pastoral counsel to Timothy, and he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So Paul is saying, Timothy, there are going to be Christians that you'll deal with in your church that have listened to something, maybe a doctrine of a demon, some error, listen to some gossip, listen to something. They've been captured by that. They don't know it. They've been captured by that. And God's using, and the devil is using them to do his will. Correct them patiently. Maybe God will give them repentance and deliverance. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. This is an admonition to us all. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. James 4, 7, similarly, James says it this way, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 kind of lays out, gives us a, a view into the celestial spiritual realm. We'll look at verses 10 and 12 for now. Paul, after the whole book of Ephesians, says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a real enemy of our souls. And the scripture here has told us we need to bind, to outwit, to resist, to stand against and to wrestle with him. We forget that and ignore that to our peril. So what is the scope of our spiritual warfare? I'm going to suggest some boundaries that I would encourage us to think about as we think about, so how do we think about, how do we do this? What, is this, what does this entail? Over the years, I've encountered individuals with a pronounced struggle with sin that I came to believe it was due in part to demonic oppression. You may know, some of you may know, uh, I was a missionary in Brazil, most of you know that. Uh, certainly in the years down there, I saw this frequently, vividly. Counter individuals who were clearly oppressed by the enemy. Jesus gave us authority to rebuke them in Jesus' name. 
However, I discovered early on that it was not wise to begin by trying to break that spiritual oppression. First, there must be repentance, must be a heart change before any really deliverance can come ultimately. And it's not a method, but it's a principle. So here's how Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it other, with seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. And so it will be with this evil generation. So we're thinking about how do we practically apply this in our lives, in our prayers, in our own lives, in those we're in contact with. It's not a formula. Some situations it kind of goes sideways fast. You got to do what you got to do. But for the most part, well, always, ultimately, change happens through repentance in our hearts. And that's the, what we should focus on when we're battling sin. It can be a distraction to focus heavily on demonic activity. The road to freedom must begin with repentance from sin. I like Dr. Grudem, the way he talks about this. And, and if, you have, if you have this book or his book, um, uh, Bible Doctrine or um, Systematic Theology, thank you. Very excellent on this topic. You can read some more on that. But he says it this way. He says, in the life of Christians, the emphasis of the New Testament is not on the influence of demons, but on the sin that remains in the believer's life. Nevertheless, we should recognize that sinning, even by Christians, does give a foothold for some kind of demonic influence in our lives. Thus Paul could say, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. This word opportunity can mean foothold, it can be placed. Give no place for the devil. Ephesians 4, 26. Wrongful anger apparently can give opportunity for the devil or demons to exert some kind of negative influence in our lives. Perhaps by attacking us through our emotions, perhaps by increasing the wrongful anger that we already feel against others. So even a Christian that continually resorts to sinful anger can give place to a demonic influence in his life or her life. And it's true of other types of sin, lust, fear, anxiety. They can become controlling. Now, it's not all that. There certainly are mental disturbances and difficulties, and we're very complex. And so, uh, where I'm heading with this is that should be our first place to look. But those, it's a reality in Scripture. By the way, as an aside, I can be tempted to use this scripture here in, in Ephesians to excuse my anger. Jesus taught us in Matthew 5.22 that if everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Right? We, we learned that some weeks ago. I can be tempted to go to this verse and say, well, wait a minute, Lord, wait, hang on. Paul says it's possible to be angry but not sin. So really what I'm feeling now is righteous anger. It, this one's okay. 
Don't, don't worry about it. This was, I, I'm, I'm righteously angry. Not really paying attention to what Paul's saying here. Um, when it comes to my brother or sister or my wife or whatever, um, if I'm still angry in the morning, it stopped being righteous and now it's sinful. And if it goes on for months or years and I get angry about that stuff, it's probably become demonic as well. Jesus call to pray for deliverance from evil is a call to pray for deliverance for our communities as well. Paul in Ephesians 6 is describing some sort of hierarchy of demonic authority. It's hard to understand and, and really we should not go beyond what scripture says which is not much other than it's there. But how do we think about that? Let me give you an example of how uh, we saw the Lord act in this way. When we were in Brazil this is many years ago now, there was a practice of a certain de demonic religion called Spiritism that they would place uh, every New Year's Eve on almost all the beaches of Brazil, there'd be hundreds setting up these areas of worship and doing their worship and, and sacrificing to the goddess of the sea. And Copacabana Beach, you may have heard of that, it's a famous beach, a mile and a half long. Millions of people, tourists would crowd in and watch that. And it was considered folklore, but it was demonic and evil. So actually, YOM started a practice of going out there a year or two before we got there, and we got involved as well. So we worked together, and we put up a, uh, a, a stage on the beach, and we had a worship band. We worshiped, we sang, we preached, we had plays all night long. We were there. Over the years, we saw people get saved through that. Uh, without really knowing, knowing it, God led us into a very balanced form of spiritual warfare. Would you pray in advance specifically for where we were going? Because we felt like God had called us to do that. Spiritual forces in those heavenly places, we prayed about that. But we sang praises to God in the midst of them. We preached the gospel to them. And the amazing thing is, over the years, more and more churches started building up stages out there and doing the same thing all night long. And fewer and fewer spiritist groups started coming out until the day came when there were no more spiritists on the beach on New Year's Eve. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was amazing to see God do that. Totally God's work in that. So, so God leads us to pray for our communities. And we can pray specifically those areas where God has called us to be. But I just want to say it is unwise and even dangerous, I think, to try to just kind of randomly take on spiritual forces in heavenly places. It's unwise to go looking for demons. The whole emphasis of Ephesians 6 is defensive. Having done all to stand. Let's read the rest of that passage together. Ephesians 6, 13 through 18. Paul says this, following on. He says, therefore, there's this struggle against these, not flesh and blood, but the spiritual, the, the principalities and powers. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God 
praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So, we can, as Christians, feel like we need to be in kind of this safe, cloistered environment. So what God calls us to do, not only with the enemy, but with people around us, we need to advance. It's the church militant we're in, but we need to do it wisely. So, we pray, praise, and preach to advance the kingdom of God into enemy territory. We pray, we praise, we preach. In a real sense, every Sunday when we gather, every time we meet in community group, we are waging war. Now, God has given us some insight, but I urge caution against going beyond what's clearly laid out in Scripture around this. And I appreciate a caution that Dr. Grudem shares, and I want to read this to you as well. Dr. Grudem says this in his book, he marked contrast to the practice of those who today emphasize strategic level spiritual warfare. In no instance does anyone in the New Testament once summon a territorial spirit upon entering an area to preach the gospel. Two, demand information from demons about a local demonic hierarchy. Three, say that we should behave, believe or teach information derived from demons. Or four, teach by word or example that certain demonic strongholds of our city have to be broken before the gospel can be proclaimed with effectiveness. Now, different groups have different understandings of this. We want to be charitable in our interaction and grateful for those who are, who are uh, pressing in to see God's word expanded around the world. But we need to avoid a fascination with spiritual warfare. We need to avoid stepping out of those things that are actually directly affecting us. Uh, we must pray and resist against the evil one and the evil as we encounter it in our lives, in our church, in our neighborhood, in our area where God's called us to. But we need to do it trusting God and not being foolish. So, this is not going to be very satisfying, but let me just say, how do we do it? How do we do spiritual warfare? And part of that, I'm thinking, someone in my life, someone I know, I feel like may be oppressed. How do I handle, what do I think about that? How do I do that? Well, some simple thoughts. First of all, own the authority you've received in Jesus' name and by his blood. You, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. In Jesus' name, we have complete authority over every power of the devil. You can pray with confidence, should pray with confidence, trusting in that. Jesus has broken the power of sin. He is, he is in Colossians, he has nailed it to the cross and exposed those principalities. You have authority. Look for repentance and trust in God's word. Don't give in to doctrines of demons. Trust, know the word. Use discernment. Is this demonic? I don't know, I think it is. Pray, pray with authority. Seems like it is, pray with authority. As you use discernment, it improves, improves over time. Stay in your lane. That was directly affecting you. I would encourage you not to go uh, tilting at windmills and trying to go after things that don't really pertain to you. But pray. Pray. Take the authority that God's given you. Pray. So, conclusion, let me come back to where, uh, to where we started. There's an easy way and there's a hard way. 
Jesus is inviting us to the easy way. Are there hard things in your lives? Are there long-standing difficulties and trials? Have you been doing it the hard way? Jesus is calling us to an easier way, to a deeper, daily deliverance from sin and evil. The Lord's Prayer gives us the opportunity to avoid temptation and shows us how to resist the devil. Your Father is inviting you to and into a deeper relationship with Him through prayer. More prayer. Until the day when the Lord's Prayer is ultimately fully answered. When His kingdom does come in its fullness and sin and oppression and sorrow and sadness are swept away. That's the day, Lord, your kingdom come. That's the day we're looking for. Until that day, we pray. But John in Revelation gave us a little glimpse of that day. Let me read you that and then we'll close. Revelation 11, 15 through 19. God's word says this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you Lord God Almighty who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. God has come, Jesus has conquered sin, his kingdom is among us, we're advancing it through our confident prayers, praying the Lord's Prayer, and one day, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Amen. Lord, we do. We do long for that day when your kingdom comes. Lord, we can see it a little bit. We can imagine it, Lord. We long for it. Father, we pray that in the meantime, we pray you would stir us to pray. Stir our hearts to pray. Stir our daily devotion, Lord. Stir us to intercede. Stir us to take authority. Lord, stir us to avoid sin. And Lord, to, to draw near to you and resist the devil in our lives. Lord, give us that deliverance, we pray. Break the power of sin over lives, not only among us, but Lord, as we interact with those in our community. Lord, we thank you that you'll do that because it is your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite you to stand with me. <clears throat> We're going to sing a song.